from the director of Poltergeist and the writer of Alien comes a terrifying new film. I'm getting a very small radar cross-section. 150 miles long. EGR's confirmed. Tell them we have an artificial object out here. In the tale of Haley's Comet, there's something wrong. Something ancient. Something evil. It's the Cannon Group's first attempt at a major blockbuster film, and of course it involved space vampires. We're still up all night, and this episode, we watched Life Force. Hello, everybody, and welcome to USA Up All Night with me, Aranda. Hi, I'm Gilbert Gottfried, the comedian in the cupboard for USA Up All Night. In this movie, you'll see two of your favorite stars. Now, if you drink enough beer, you'll start seeing more of your favorite stars. Stay with me on USA Up All Night. It may not be Friday or Saturday night, but you've found Still Up All Night, the only podcast that celebrates the films of USA Up All Night. I'm Travis Yates, joined by my co-host and fellow human, Rob Katie. Rob, how is it going? It's going well, but are you sure I'm not a space vampire? You might be a humanoid. We're not sure. I'm going (laughs) to have to test you before the end of the episode. Uh, Rob, before we dive into this week's movie, I have a couple shout-outs. One to you for the awesome birthday gift that you gave me last month, the Canon Film Guide Volume 1. Now, this is an exploration of Canon's early work from 1980 to 1984, Canon, of course, is the film company The Canon Group, run by two Israeli cousins that churned out just awesome B-movie cult classics like Enter the Ninja, the Death Wish films, Breaking, and Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo. You get the drift. Uh, There's a great documentary on The Canon Group called Electric Boogaloo, The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films. I highly recommend that if you haven't seen it already. And this book, The Canon Film Guide, is an awesome companion to that documentary. Yeah, and I believe they're they're working on the second volume now. They are. It's going to cover 85 to 87, and it should be out later this year. And Rob, I have to say, first of all, the cover alone of this book is a work of art. It is des- <laughs> Absolutely. It, it is designed to look like a beat-up old VHS movie case uh, with a round orange sticker on it labeled Action, like you'd find in the early 80s video stores to identify the movie genre. It's just awesome. And um, the next shout-out goes to the author, Austin Trunick, for reaching out to us after I posted something on our social media page about getting the book for my birthday. He offered to send a signed book plate sticker for the inside cover of the book, and this thing came, and the sticker itself is is awesome. It looks like it's straight out of the 80s, and, it, and the, the package even came with a only a ninja can color a ninja ninja coloring uh, book sheet. So it's amazing. Uh, so awesome. So, um, Austin, thank you for that and for all the work that went into putting in this just radical collection together. And yeah, we can't wait for volume two, uh, which like I said, is slated to be released later this year. So Rob already 2021 is better than 2020. Um, <laughs> Big time. And you can learn all about the book by visiting canonfilmguide.com. So, of course, we had to go with a canon film this episode. Unfortunately, it's not from Volume 1 of the Film Guide, so we'll have to revisit it when Volume 2 comes out and and get uh, Austin's take on it. But we're talking about 1985's Life Force. So, Rob, initial reaction when we chose this movie? Well, I think I'd indicated to you it'd been about... 25 years since I last visited the movie and uh, have very different memories of the movie than sitting down and the experience of rewatching it. Um, it's, it's, it felt nowhere near as action packed as I remember it being. And, and that all could be the haze of age or the haze of, uh, nudity from Matilda May, you know, that, that, yeah, that could make you forget all kinds of stuff. I would thinking that you would probably younger Rob would just remember that part of the film, which there's just so much of. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, certainly that is a, a, a memory that sticks out because for a, a movie like this, that was not a, you know, a common thing. So back then, you know, it was yeah. more the teen, teen romance, teen comedy, sex comedy aisle. You didn't often have that with the uh, sort of action horror type stuff. You know, I, I saw the cover of this film and I thought, well, I've surely seen this. I recognized it. And I thought I'd seen every uh, sci-fi film from around this time. Uh, but uh, watching this film, I had no recollection of it. So I don't think I saw it. I, I missed it oh, wow. uh, somehow. And I'll, exp- I'll, I'll get into that here in a second. So let's talk about the movie. Life Force was a production from the Canon Group uh, and distributed uh, in the U.S. by Canon and TriStar Pictures and... Uh, boy, Rob, it, it has gotten around since. So Life Force, uh, it's one of Canon's popular releases here. Image Entertainment had the rights to the Laserdisc in 86. Um, MGM had the rights to the UK, US, and Mexico VHS and DVD distribution. MGM eventually got the rights to the Laserdisc in 94. So bad timing there <laughs> for MGM to get into the Laserdisc game. Um Oops. RCA Columbia had Australia home video rights. Scream Factory released a Blu-ray in 2014. Warner and WGN uh, and USA got in on the TV rights. So um, it's like Johnny Cash wrote the song for this film. It's been everywhere, man. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, Although I have heard some good things about the uh, Blu-ray release. Yeah, and of course, those special edition releases always come with with lots of special features, and and I understand there's some revealing interviews um, with the director in that. So this film is quite a bit different from most canon films because Life Force had a budget of $25 million, so a big break from the low-budget fodder that canon would typically produce around this time. Uh, this was their attempt at a blockbuster in the heart of the era, the late 70s and, and early 80s, where the blockbuster formula was developed. So, you know, kudos to them for taking a swing. But did they connect? Well, it was released in the U.S. in theaters on the weekend of June 23rd, 1985, and it brought in $4.2 million in the opening weekend, and it ended up grossing just $11.6 million. So... A box office bust by any standard, but uh, as is the case with most of the films that we celebrate on this podcast, it it <laughs> eventually garnered a cult cl- uh, classic status. So, yes, um, one of the reasons for that, Rob, is because there's a familiar name at the helm. Life Force is directed by Toby Hooper, best of known as the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the first Poltergeist director. Hooper was named one of the Masters of Horror by Anchor Bay in their 2005 anthology series that celebrated just some of the greats of the horror genre that included the likes of Dario Argento and John Carpenter. So as we'll discuss, um, even though he is one of the Masters of Horror, this was kind of Hooper's last big hurrah in Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, he came in, you know... After Poltergeist, you know, which garnered him the the deal with Canon, and, and I think it was like a three movie deal he signed with them. But uh, you know, as you said, the the swing and a miss on this attempt at the blockbuster, you know, particularly at the time, relative to some some other more well known commodities like the the budget they threw at this thing was just gigantic. Yeah, this was. Uh... You're you're right. The first of of a three picture deal that Hooper signed with the Cannon Group, and those other two films were Invaders from Mars, a remake of the 1953 film, and then a sequel to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But it was kind of received more as a parody in the way that it had kind of a black comedy to it that wasn't present in the first film. Although Hooper kind of in some revisionist history, maybe he tried to say, well, there was black comedy in the first one. People just missed it. I don't know about yeah. that, but, um, but, but I do find that I, I appreciate, uh, Texas chainsaw too, uh, because of all the, just the, how wildly different it is from the first one. And, and it is a goofy, weird movie. And, and I also find a lot of charm in his remake of in, invaders from Mars. It, uh, you know, you go in sort of, you know, with the premise and, and the central, you know, actor being a young kid, but it's, it's got some pretty gross and scary moments in it. 
Yeah, this film is based on the 1976 Colin Wilson novel Space Vampires. So, spoiler alert, uh, that's the plot. <laughs> um, but, yeah, as you said, just like uh, the, the big change in uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 compared to the first film that he did, um, he worked with uh, screenwriter Dan O'Bannon on, on this film to make several changes from the novel. So it wasn't just an, a, you know, a carbon copy. Um, including setting it in present day rather than in the future where it was set in the novel, and then also working in Halley's Comet, um, which we have to go back and remember, 85. Halley's Comet was set to pass Earth in 1986. So I think a brilliant move on Hooper's part. You know, I was just a kid, but I remember the media frenzy over this once-in-a-lifetime event of the comet. So, you know, a great tie-in with the movie here of, you know, what could happen when the comet passes by. Uh, Rob, do you have any Haley's Comet memories? Oh, just as you said, the the sort of frenzy of it and the excitement, just that that sort of phenomenon happening generated. And this was '85, uh, and, yeah. and you know, a comet came in '86. You know, we're, we've now have rover helicopters flying around on Mars. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. today it'd be ho hum. You know, when Haley's Comet comes back in, uh, I think it's slated to come back in like 19, in 2061, maybe. But um, it's like going to be yeah. like no one's going to care. You know, it's going to yeah. pass by, and you know, people are going to be taking well, selfies, but ignoring the comet behind them flying over. <laughs> or, or Elon Musk is going to try and land something on it. You know. Maybe the car that he sent yeah. up will be on it already. Who knows? <laughs> uh, uh, okay, so screenwriter Dan O'Bannon might not be a household name, but he should be. Um, he he had, is in this household. Yes. Uh, he attended USC with John Carpenter, and the two paired up to write the sci-fi satire film Dark Star, which was Carpenter's featured directorial debut in 1974. It was actually a, a college student film that they made that, that ultimately found theaters. O'Bannon would go on to write Alien, Ridley Scott's Alien. Um, yep. And he would uh, also write and make his directorial debut with 1985's The Return of the Living Dead. In the 90s, he wrote the screenplays for Total Recall and Screamers. O'Bannon has forgotten more about sci-fi, writing sci-fi, than I think most people ever (laughs) learn in a lifetime. Absolutely. He's got all sorts of alien-related credits as well for for shorts and video games and, yeah, just the, the whole, you know, alien franchise you know he's got his his fingers in in terms of writing pieces of it yeah when you talk to even cinephiles might say when you say alien what do you think of and they'll say ridley scott and really i mean this was o'bannon's baby well and and you know i've I've always found return of the living dead to be one of the the greatest zombie films ever made you know in my opinion you're not alone in that yeah that's a, a a wide uh, widely accepted opinion, so absolutely. So the film's cinematographer was Alan Hume, uh, who was the director of photography for Return of the Jedi, Octopussy, Supergirl, and A View to a Kill leading up to Life Force. I mean, that's an amazing resume, Rob. Uh, but when you look at his career post-Life Force, it starts to look a little like Toby Hooper's. More TV than film, some lower-budget films. Rob, I mean, I'm starting to think that by trying to make a blockbuster, the Canon Group might have created a curse, uh, <laughs> right? I mean, you you found a great IndieWire article um, that talked about how this was basically the last big project for Hooper, and it's a shame because, I mean, they did everything right. You know, they hired yeah. the right people. Henry Mancini was the composer. The music was composed by, for, by the London Symphony Orchestra, but it just kind of feels cursed in a way. Well, all of it. I mean, the, the visual effects are, are, are well done, you, yeah. know, to, you know, to varying degrees. Um, but, you know, like, like the space stuff, I mean, some of that, you know, looks a little weird now. But for the time, it definitely, you know, was was the upper echelon and, and held its own against the other, you know, space scenes and other movies. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's again, uh, when you take such a big swing and, and uh, it is, um, and, and I'm sure we'll get into it more, in many ways, a, a strange movie where, where you've got, you know, the central hero being a U.S. citizen. You know, it's all British cast mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and just that alone seems to um, often hurt movies um, that come to the United States. You know, if, if all the cast is, 
you know, from elsewhere. Yep. Yep. We will talk more about the, the cast here. Uh, Life Force debuted on USA Up All Night on March 11th, 1994, as the first film of the evening's trio. And I think that might be why I missed this film. I don't know how I missed it in video stores, but by 1994, um, I, you know, I was wrapping up high school, moving on to college. So this is when I started kind of missing out on those home for USA Up All Night <laughs> Saturday, Friday and Saturdays, my social calendar was pretty booked by this point. So uh, I missed a lot of the films that that aired in this in this time period. So that's, I think, one of the reasons why I missed it. Uh, Surprisingly, it would only air just three more times between um, that debut and May of 95. So the up all night content director circa 94, 95, you know, must have been the lone life force fan on the staff. Well, too, it it is. um... Well, I guess maybe I thought it was about two hours, but maybe it is a little bit shorter than that. It seems it was longer than yeah, yeah, longer than the traditional movie, you know, in in the up all night catalog. Uh, So, as you referenced, the film was shot in England and it starred a largely British cast. And again, like you said, I, I think that had something to do with it being a box office bust. It starred Steve Railsback, who certainly wasn't a household name here or really at any point in his career. Um, he's a yeah. classic, that guy from That Thing, with you know nearly 100 acting credits on his resume. In 1985, he was you know uh, probably, uh, excuse me, 75. In 1975, he was probably uh, best known for playing Charles Manson um, in a TV miniseries or uh, in the 1980 film The Stuntman that co-starred Peter O'Toole and Barbara Hershey. So if you... Um, you know, bigger on the map projects, but but really nothing at, at, by the time he starred here in Life Force. Well, and, and then you know that sort of sticks with him throughout his career. While he's a long career and and you know as a a busy individual, um, nothing really jumps out as being you know a, a real hit of any sort. Right. Uh, and then the film is just loaded with British talent that I think many common you know U.S. audiences in '85 weren't all that familiar with. Peter Firth and Frank Finlay, to be specific, um, you know one one definite familiar face in Life Force, though maybe not necessarily in '85, is Sir Patrick Stewart, Captain. Yeah, I believe I believe hot off his appearance in Dune as well. Ah, yes, Captain Picard cutting his teeth two years before the Next Generation would you know launch him into stardom in the U.S. Um, with with a, a short but uh, uh, interesting role here, and mm. then uh, German actress and dancer Matilda May rounds out the cast as our lead vampire and mostly naked space girl, as she's credited in the film. Um, and then Rob, again that that article that you found from IndieWire uh, talks uh, <laughs> about how they finally settled on May. Um, what did they say? Yeah. May was basically. The only actress after like 50 screen tests? Yeah, they they had all kinds of issues, you know, predominantly because of the, the nature of the role. I mean, she had just a handful of lines and was naked for, you know, the entire movie. And, you know, just nobody would sign up for that. And, uh, you know, then even after, like I read one blurb about some, some German auditions where like the actresses sort of, revolted in the audition (laughs) so yeah they had all kinds of trouble finding a lead actress and the issue here was basically because i mean she's nude most of the film at least the first part of the film she's just you know walking around or presented to us laying down just completely naked yeah and there's some humorous uh bits about that as well because i guess at some point toby hooper decided she should be hairless and and ordered that to occur and and other people kept pushing back because i i believe matilda may was 18 she was young and um well they she reappeared completely shaven and and uh, apparently that was a mistake mm-hmm. you could see a little too much at that point so they had to you know basically murkin her <laughs> and and uh yeah try and correct that mistake she didn't even speak English. She had to phonetically learn the language for the film. So, um, you know, I, I thought she was perfect for this role. And uh, again, she doesn't have a lot of lines, mostly just very slow, kind of entrancing, seduction-like. 
uh, you know, roles to 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 reel in her victims. But yeah. uh, but you know, she was gorgeous, certainly mm-hmm. uh, easy on the eyes, and and very memorable from the film for sure. Yeah, absolutely. She you know for the what they were going for, where you know she's she's not human, and and she definitely you know. <sighs> pulled it off, you know, there was like a, a, a non-human element to her that, uh, yeah, like I said, she, she pulled it off. Uh, so any, anything else related to the background of the film, Rob, before we jump into this very unique plot? Uh, no, let's just jump in. Okay. So, uh, you know, as you referenced, the film itself looks great. Um, you know, the budget was wisely spent as, as far as the production value goes. Uh, we've got a title sequence that has us floating over a comet as we get some exposition narration from John Larroquette, yeah. <laughs> which was just kind of odd. But, uh, but well, I expected to see him in the film, too. And, right. And, you know, nope. And and we were never revisited by any other narration, so that was just Correct, kind of an yeah. odd. You know, we have this omniscient. They really had to explain how this chip had made it all the way out here to the Halley's comet, and let's bring in John Larroquette <laughs> to tell us, and then that's it. But uh, we've got a joint U.S.-British research team led by Colonel Tom Carlson, who's played by Steve Railsback, the leading man. And uh, they're getting close to Halley's Comet when they detect a large object in the head of the comet that's like 150 miles wide, I think they said. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so they, they decide to take a team and explore it. And Rob, did you notice, so the name of the ship that they're on is the Churchill, so obviously a reference to, uh, yep, to Winston Churchill. And did you notice the, the exterior door of the ship when the team w- came out to explore it? It was uh, shaped like a coffin. Oh, I did not pick up on that. Yeah, I'll post that on our social media page, but a really nice little detail by the production team, you know, in a in a vampire movie that audiences yeah. might not have noticed. But I, I, yeah, I picked up, I saw that right away. I'm like, oh, really good <laughs> right there. Really good. Well, I, and I, I'm not sure if you saw the tidbit of what the, the ship was modeled after. Uh, no, it looked like a, like a weird flower to me or like a Venus flytrap. <laughs> An artichoke. Of all things. <laughs> I love it. See, here we go. Hooper really does insert that black comedy into the film. So maybe, <laughs> maybe we need to revisit Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Maybe it was there. We just all missed it. Yeah. Um, okay, so when they get to the object, they find these giant petrified bats in the first chamber that they stop in. We kind of really fly through all this. It's, it's a lot of exposition and chopped up. They kind of skip the whole... You could almost make a movie just out of this... <laughs> whole sequence alone um they go deeper into this object and they find three human bodies humanoids as they refer to them completely naked and in these like clear cases and lit up so they can see them very clearly um, this is when we first meet um matilda may as the space girl Uh, and then there's two male figures that look exactly alike almost like twins yeah Uh, they take the bodies back to the shuttle, and then we jump ahead 30 days, and we learn that the entire crew is dead. A fire burned up the whole interior of the shuttle. The only thing left uh, in the ship are these three cases with the bodies still in their uh, in perfect condition, and there's also a missing escape pod. So what do you think yeah, of this yeah. kind of opening uh, exposition that's uh, kind of set the stage here to get our humanoids back to Earth? Yeah, strangely enough, I had almost no recollection of this part of the movie. Yeah, I just barely remember any of the spit. Like, I remember them finding the three, but didn't really remember all the bats prior to that. And yeah, like that, just having the ship burned up. And I did, I did get a real kick out of the um, the life pod, though, where like <laughs> barely one person could fit into it. <laughs> Like oh, you've, that, got a, you've got a crew of what, like eight, and you know maybe one small crew member is is, is escaping right. or something goes wrong. Yeah. Um, so the British space research team examines the bodies and they determine that they're dead. But then I love this little back and forth. One scientist says, "Well, I can't argue what alien death looks like." And then response from another scientist that says, "Well, you'd agree that they're more dead than we are." <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, a funny little exchange here. Um, so, you know, y- you referenced it already. Visually, I'm really impressed at, at, at what we've seen so far. Uh, the effects are mostly practical. And, you know, you can see Canon doing a great job with their budget. Nothing looks hokey. 
the movie does feel dated though uh almost yeah. like it belongs in the 70s rather than you know 1985 i don't know if it was the slow pace uh, maybe the orchestra music that was overlaid like in every scene it reminded me more of 1971's the andromeda strain or 1972's silent running rather than you know star wars or aliens so well, and i wonder if part of that is is you know the british cast in in how seriously they took everything like they you know are are fully on board with this premise there is no hokiness you know it's it they're just dead serious for it all and and i have to think that kind of attributes to it feeling a little bit older than it is and i think that's why i like that line so much about the way it was delivered of well you'd agree they're more dead than we are because yeah it was yeah. such a straight man delivery of such a just ridiculous premise Goofy line. yeah yeah um okay so we start to get some plot development now when our naked girl from space wakes up and seduces a guard only to start sucking the life out of him while kissing him so he's left in a decayed heap and the space girl slash vampire or vampiress i'm not sure here the right <laughs> vernacular yeah. <laughs> rob i don't know how to refer to her but anyway she escapes from the facility stark naked and uh colonel colin kane who's played by peter firth and then dr hans falata played by frank finlay and then dr bukowski played by michael gothard uh they tour the facility and try to figure out what to do next and while they're doing that our space vampires claims another victim a woman in a park so she's now out wreaking havoc in the yeah. in the public and rob we haven't mentioned michael gothard but his character is pretty central to the film here as one of britain's kind of space researchers um gothard would be a uh, british oh that guy i guess um he's appeared in all sorts of film and television probably best known over across the pond um in the british tv series arthur of the britons and he was also Ooh. a bond villain in 1981's for your eyes only uh, but sadly, sadly, uh, he committed suicide in 1992 at the age of 53. So um, really sad there. But I, you know, I thought he was great, you know, in this as kind of always the, the always distraught, always delivering bad news character. Yeah. Well, he was the only character, too, to have an interaction with, you know, a vampire and survive. And I, I kept thinking, you know, waiting for that to kind of come back around and uh, never really did. Yeah, it didn't. Uh, he, she, the, when the initial guard was first attacked and killed, then he, you know, ran in and she started to suck the life out of him. But then they were disrupted by guards, and so she took off and he survived. But yeah, we we never had that revisited at all. In fact, he um, he died off screen, barely referenced after yeah. a very, you know, always in all the, you know integral scenes in the first half of the film then he just kind of fell off the map here yeah. and and i have to give a shout out to the, the special effects of the you know the uh absorbed decaying husks of, of people um that i thought they just looked fantastic very to me reminded me of return of the living dead and and uh yeah especially when the one uh comes back to life when they go to you know perform the autopsy yeah, so let's let's talk about that scene. The the um, the guard that our space vampire killed comes back to life during the autopsy, and he has vampire powers or or whatever these alien powers are himself. He lures one of the doctors over and sucks that doctor's life force out, but uh, before they can restrain him and like lock him up, and so he's come back to life, and. Um, and then now you've got the dead, kind of vampified, decaying doctor. So Dr. Falata comes up with a theory here, and this is an important one, that every two hours the vampire needs someone's life force, otherwise they dry up and die. So hence the petrified bats that we found in this first chamber start to make sense because they, like, break off part of it and it just goes turns to dust. So, Well, then then we learn, too, how easily, you know, this, this virus is passed. You know, if you get your energy sucked out, you know, you then husk up, but you've got your two hour window to absorb someone else and they're thereby, you know, just continue to spread this. Yeah. They treat it like a plague later. They even reference like a two hour incubation period. So yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I, the, the one thing though, that I, I, that totally broke the scene for me is the, 
noise the you know drained person makes. To me, it just <laughs> sounded so much like a dying sheep or something. I kind of liked just... <laughs> it. Oh, I, I kind of liked it just because it was kind of creepy. The uh... oh, it absolutely was creepy. It just <laughs> I my mind immediately went to what what is that sound? It it sounds like a you know, a natural noise being made by something, but certainly not a human would, would make. But uh, that, and that was one of the searches I tried to do to find out, you know, wh- what was that noise? And, you know, that led me down a rabbit hole of all these different articles, but I, I couldn't find an answer to that question. Well, even though this was a, has a blockbuster budget, it is still a canon film. So there is a very <laughs> good chance that they could have gone to one of the, you know, sheep fields of England and said, all right, let's get a sheep giving birth. Get yeah. some audio of that and dump it in. I mean, yeah, th- th- this is a real possibility. Um, okay, so then they they go visit these this guard and the doctor two hours later, and they confirm their their suspicions. They watch him decay, and then in a um, cool and and I thought really fun shot, they they watch the doctor that was doing the autopsy come back to life, and then try to escape by running through the kind of cell bars that he was oh, behind, yeah. and then just to explode as he. Try as he crashes through the bars and explodes in dust and dies, and the dust goes all over the uh, the, the guys watching. I thought that was a really cool scene. That was I, yeah, absolutely. So this sets up a great sequence where Doctor Falata says ominously, "The same thing is going to happen to the girl they found in the park." And he looks at his watch and he says, "In about one hour." One hour. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so then, in a disturbing, I thought, next scene, they've got this petrified naked woman that was attacked in the park by our vampires, strapped to a table with all sorts of, and it's the husk of the girl, naked, mm-hmm. and uh, all sorts of medical interest, instruments attached to her. And like clockwork, she wakes up, starts convulsing, making the you know dead slash sheep and labor sounds. And then with no life force available, she just explodes in a cloud of dust. Dust again, uh, yeah. What did you think of that scene? <clears throat> I thought, it was, you know, again, that shout out to the effects team. She looked great and was, was really creepy. And I, I liked the little nod where they had her hooked up to the EKG, you know, and it was a flat line. And then it, it came to life as she, you know, awakened to, to hopefully feed on someone else's life force. And yeah, and then the, the dust explosion. Yeah. It's just fun stuff, yeah. So just as Kane and Falada are figuring things out in England, guess who's back? Surprise. <laughs> it's Colonel Tom Carlson. Uh, so it wasn't hard to put this together since, you know, Rail, Railsback character is the top billing. So yes. the escape uh, pod re-enters Earth, Earth's atmosphere, lands in Texas. Uh, the tiny little escape pod. It's funny when they open up the door and it, you know, kind of reminded me of Tom Hanks from Castaway. He's all beardy and just like yeah. looks exhausted, uh, but he's okay. So when he finally debriefs the group back in England, we get the a flashback that shows the crew members dying one by one in the same fashion that they are here on Earth. Uh, with the life sucked out of them. But it's odd because the three vampires are still in their cases on the ship. Uh, and so uh, uh, Carlson doesn't know you know, what happened or how they died. So uh, kind of a curious flashback there. But uh, once everyone but Carlson are dead, he decides to blow up the ship because he doesn't want to send whatever they picked up from the comet to Earth. So he opens the oxygen tanks on the on the ship, lights a fire, jumps into the tiny escape pod, the fire burns through the ship, uh, but as we know, it does make it to Earth with the vampires still intact. And I love the kind of aha moments that you get at like the midpoint of a film. And Rob, I'm going to drop a little film school knowledge uh, on us here. So most films have what's known as a midpoint that, uh, not surprising, comes in the middle of the rising action of the film or act two of the movie. So the purpose of a midpoint is to freshen up the narrative. Uh, Veteran screenwriter Sid Field describes this action as stabbing the narrative with a big hook and then spinning it in a completely different direction. So we don't often see this in our Up All Night films because the screenwriting, you know, it isn't often all that polished. Um, But we're dealing with Dan O'Bannon here. So we do get a very intriguing midpoint event. Uh, Dr. Bukowski comes in and tells Kane that they've detected an object leading the head of Halley's Comet and coming towards Earth. And when Kane asks how big it is, he says 150 miles long. Um, Now, in the opening sequence, when the astronauts were in the chamber with the three humanoids, 
I don't know if you noticed it, but you could see hundreds of pods behind them, but they weren't yes. lit up. So, you know, you, you, you're not sure what was inside, but presumably more vampires and now all heading towards Earth. So, Rob, did this scene make you perk up a bit? Did you get the aha moment there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, because it <clears throat> definitely uh, you know, dramatically ups the stakes, you know, that we're, that we're dealing with. Like suddenly now that's that's your initial thought. Like, oh, oh Jesus, this ship coming to Earth to release, you know, space vampires everywhere. Yeah, we, we thought uh, at one point two guards, uh, the other two male vampires woke up, came out of their case, and then we thought they were blown up by some you know guards attacking Grenades. Them. Yeah, so they were kind of just forgotten for a while. And so, you know, right now we just think we've got one random vampires that's out there one by one kind of getting some energy from these people. And then all of a sudden it's, oh, the fate of the Earth now <laughs> is uh, is at stake. So Colonel Carlson is visited by uh, the space vampire in his dreams, and they have a rather racy dream where she's giving him life, um, and they're kind of having a moment, uh, as they say, and and she's naked, he's naked. When he wakes up screaming and saying, she's in my head, she's in my head, they all hypothesize that if she can connect with Carlson, then he should be able to connect with her. And um, so... They um, they hypnotize him, and he's able to see kind of what she's seeing, and so she's jumped bodies now into a woman named Ellen, and she's looking for victims not to kill, but just to take enough life force to stay alive without getting caught. So she's honed in on a man on the side of the road, and and uh, Carlson's able to see the license plate, which allows police to track her down. They track her down to an insane, like an insane asylum, I guess is what it was yes. called. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the head of the place is Dr. Armstrong, played by Patrick Stewart. So here we go. And, you know, speaking of vampires, Patrick Stewart might be one. I mean, he looked in 1985 like he looks in 2021, right? A hundred percent. That definitely caught my eye as well and made me crack up. He and Paul Rudd might be two actual vampires yeah. that just never age. So Kane and Carlson go into Ellen's room, and in a super awkward scene, I thought, you know, Carlson starts getting really rough with this lady, calls yeah. her a masochist, and um, he's able to see into the minds of people who have been possessed by the vampires and gets a description of who she's jumped into. Um, so before we get to who she's actually jumped into, yeah, were you equally disturbed by that oh, scene? I, it came it, out of it, nowhere. It, exactly. It came so out of nowhere. And he, just the way he acted that scene was so creepy and effective and, and you know, like, oh, she wants this type thing. And it was like, wait, what? What's happening right now? Yeah. It, it, you know, and then for him to say something to uh, Colonel Kane about, like, you might want to leave, you know, this I'm about to basically get rough with her and he's like oh no i'm into that I i'm a voyeur yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's like whoa what just happened in this movie yeah it, that was really awkward um so he uh carlson tells them that it's that describes someone and he's like yes it's another patient down here it's like this, some, some twisted kid killer but in a twist she's jumped into dr armstrong So Picard is now possessed. Uh, They drug him, and Carlson tries to drag the vampires out. Uh, But then he starts screaming, let me go, let me go, over and over. Uh, She reveals to him, I I feel like from this moment on, the film just kind of almost changes, it changes pace completely. Um, yeah. She reveals that she being the the vampires that that they're using the human minds to create shapes and languages and bodies that would appeal to them. So that's she became this like perfect woman in his mm-hmm. image. Or, and or even image. even the the bat creatures were were a manufacturer of this. That the, these weren't really that. You know, they weren't giant bats. Although, well, we'll get to that yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a little bit. But so a big, a big brouhaha ensues here. Uh, the vampire tries to escape. Kane has to stab Doctor Armstrong with two doses of pentothal in the neck yeah. to stop her. Um, and then in the next scene, it's revealed from Doctor Falada that that only the original three vampires can switch bodies, but their victims become vampires too. 
and he killed one of them with a lead sword just below their hearts. So here's the here's how you kill them sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then as Kane and Carlson are flying back to London by helicopter with Dr. Anderson's body on board, Dr. Anderson's body just starts to explode. Blood starts pouring out of his head, <laughs> pouring out. briefly forming the original female vampire shaped in red you know blood she looks like carrie you know like covered in almost blood. like yeah like a wax figure yeah that was a, it was a weird scene yeah but i, I appreciated it it was because at first you're you're left wondering well what is this this blood forming and then yeah it becomes you know the, the lead female space vampire yeah you start to realize that there's a there's certainly a deeper connection here between carlson and the vampire and we finally know why carlson finally confides in kane uh, in this helicopter ride that he opened up the case of the ship uh while everyone was still alive and let her have some of his life force and then she exchanged some of her life force with him and i thought this was so cool um, he says they must have been living off each other. These three remaining vampires must have been living off each other uh, since they were the only three left when they found them. So I, it's such a cool and creepy concept of, okay, we're the only three left. So they just kind of back and forth, keep exchanging what little energy they have. Um, and then he tells Kane that she went on to kill everyone else on the ship, but him Carlson and she chose him, but he didn't know for what. So, you know, he feels special. I'm the chosen one. Yeah, I've got this yeah. connection. Kane tries talking <laughs> sense into him, saying, you know, she's not human. She'll destroy him. Uh, and then Carlson, like in a daze, admits, yes, she's destroyed worlds. Um, you know, I, Rob, the pace is really picked up now. Now it feels like an 80s action movie. What, what do yeah. you think of the, the where we're going off the rails here? Well, I got I got to drop a fun fact before we get too far away from that scene. So back with with Patrick Stewart, you know, he and and Steve Railsback um, share a kiss. You know, as yes. the, the you know female vampire sort of takes over for a moment, and that was Patrick Stewart's first on screen kiss. How about that? <laughs> with Steve Railsback. No, Steve Railsback, yeah. We've got to get So some... anyway, I just wanted to share that. But yeah, we're, we're definitely, you know, and I have to admit, it, up until this point, the parts of the movie definitely felt slow to me. And uh, it, was, it was definitely taking its time building to this. And, and that's one of my, my memories. I, I don't remember the movie being slow. I have... You know, in, in hindsight, my memory told me it was much more action packed than it actually is and, until obviously this the latter chunk of the movie. But, uh, yeah, so at this point, I'm now appreciating that the ball is finally getting rolling. Yeah, not not surprising that, the uh, you know, from a from a youthful memory, this is the part. These are the parts you'll remember and not that yeah. this opening almost all exposition sort of slow moving. Uh, narrative moving leading up to this part so yeah that makes sense so if patrick stewart we need to follow him on on twitter and if he ever doesn't ask me anything if he's like waiting in the doctor's office <laughs> as some <laughs> celebrities do we've got to get in on that action and say find out what he thought about his first on-screen kiss with steve Railsback. Yeah. uh okay so let's see the guys uh then get word that london is in shambles the city is burning and the vampires are spreading they, they think it's a plague um we get this cool shot because they're still in the helicopter heading back to london yeah. and uh you know this cool shot that again looked pretty good for 1985 of basically london on fire uh, well we too we get the the awesome movie trope of the the blue energy beam you know shooting up into space as, as we see in all kinds of yes, sci-fi movies. Yes. Uh, the only thing is we've kind of switched gears here because the then we get some you know sh sh shots from the streets of London and they look and act more like zombies. Uh, yeah, it's like a, it suddenly switches gears to a zombie film. Yeah, where where people are screaming and running and and they are sort of fast moving zombies as these you know vampire people. A lot of them in in weird states of decay as well. Um, you know, just mobbing people and draining their life force and but we also learned too that uh and i don't i i think i missed something with that that big blue ball of energy that's swirling around the city sucking up life force left and right that they're hoping to transfer back to the ship but and the the male vampires are responsible for that ball of energy but they have to send it through her right so we, we find out that she's kind of the key 
to everything here, which makes sense of why she's been so important to the film. And and we we learn that the other uh, male vampires are still alive somehow, and but they're just off. Yeah, they're, they're, every time someone gets infected, the energy goes up to the ship, but it's it flows through our vampirus first. So, uh, you know, you made a good point about how the zombies act in this because you know, twenty eight days later, largely gets credited with kind of revamping the zombie genre yeah. and and moving from the slow moving Romero type zombie to the the modern zombie that 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 runs and makes them you know 10 times more frightening (laughs) than than the than the older not that the older zombies aren't frightening but when you then give them um you know the speed in which the newer zombies move but really yeah this life force never gets any type of credit in that discussion (laughs) i guess because it's technically based on space vampires but i think they should get a little bit of credit yeah yeah planting the idea somewhere yeah so, um, you know, we've got almost like now a, a, a buddy cop film of sorts with uh, Kane and Carlson, which uh, we'll, 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 get, we'll circle back to that a little later. Uh, but this duo here, they're now called to the Citadel to meet with the prime minister. And when he walks in, he's all sweaty and distracted. Yeah. So I thought which is a, a key sort of signifying element of of having had your life force or somehow being involved in, with one of the vampires is you just become sweaty as all get out yeah it's interesting the way this film just it's almost like two separate films in the way the rules work in terms yeah. of you know first when we take your life force you become this this just dried husk uh and then you come back to life but still the husk you have to go get somebody else's life force and then it's shifted to more of a zombie kind of, Oh, you got bit. You're going to slowly mutate. And so, yeah, it, it, interesting here, but it, I thought it was a, fun, a bit of a funny scene, but also pretty cool when they basically realize, okay, everyone's at risk here. And they, you know, they, they, they run through the halls to get back to the helicopter and they see all the soldiers and they're all sweating and falling over and stuff. Yeah. Uh, they're told when they get back to the helicopter by the pilot that London is under quarantine. NATO's now in control. Uh, they're taken to we got a war film on our hands now yeah Uh, absolutely well they drop the you know essentially we're going to nuke the city you know to contain it yeah they're taken to a staging base outside of london and they learn that's they didn't know this until now that the huge object that was coming from the comet it's stationed above london and this is when we get that that stream of blue energy that you mentioned this is the big reveal when they see this uh for them taking all the energy that's that's being taken by the vampires on the ground up to the ship and um, you know Carlson explained how when she exchanged energy she gave him some of hers and and now she wants it back and so I don't know th- at this point though this cat and mouse between her and Carlson's gotten kind of hokey for me I mean <laughs> what, what, a little bit I did love though the way this led up to the climax because now Carlson and Kane have to drive through the, you know, zombie-ridden streets of London because we've moved so far away from the vampire genre now. Um, Carlson's off to to confront the vampires while Kane is going back to the research center to find uh, Doctor Falliday. There's a hilarious scene where Carlson hears the vampire calling to him and stops his truck, and then like a bunch of zombie slash vampire people jump on, and he speeds away, and one of the arms of the guys on the truck rip off, and he's holding the arm, and the hand is still moving, <laughs> and he just kind of holds it up and looks at it as the hand is is wiggling. Yeah, I love the the sort of expression on his face as he then chucks it into the back of the truck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, great zombie stuff here. Um, that since we've just morphed into a, a full-on zombie movie now. Um, okay, so Kane gets to the research center, finds uh, Doctor Falada, who is you know sweating now. <laughs> so of course he's he's been you know bitten or life force sucked out whatever is happening now but not before he reveals to kane where the female vampire is so it's pretty obvious where this is heading uh, kane kills falada and um, he's on his way to help carlson but first he has to confront one of the original male vampires in front of this like chapel where she's uh, hiding out and sending all the energy up when 
Kane stabs the vampire in the chest, we finally get a look at what the creatures really are. And those giant petrified bats that you talked about that we've referenced from that first chamber, I mean, that's kind of what they are. They're giant bats, um, which makes sense with vampire lore, you know? Yeah, or or that's a you know a thing they're allowing them to see. Again, it's, you know, with her dropping that nugget earlier, you know, what do you believe? True. I did like the the line before though, where he you know he makes his appearance and basically says to to Colonel Kane, you know, it'd be easier if you just came yeah. to me. <laughs> yeah, the vampire and a really kind of creepy voice too. Yeah. I like that. Uh, yeah. And of course, he's hiding the sword behind his back, and he's like, "Oh, I will." <laughs> <laughs> and then he runs up and, and stabs him. So, which the whole the whole sword thing was so uh, oddly uh, pulled off too. Like they show you know Faladay in his office opening like this this weird case that has the sword and you know going on about the oh you know later about the oh just like old vampires you know through the heart with lead and it's like wait what huh where did the sword come from what so yeah a lot of the the research into this film this film went uh like we went over budget it was um shooting went uh over time by several weeks and uh tristar pictures actually ended up um editing the final theatrical cut for this and it was it was really a mess basically um just because of i think as we see with almost like two different types of movies (laughs) here within we just had there's so much happening and so to try to put all this together you see a lot of ideas start and then never come to fruition and yeah that that sword was one of the ideas i think that okay here's something that's supposed to be big but then ends up just being kind of ancillary off to the side well i believe too i read that you know something of like another cut of the movie exists that's like 14 minutes longer it's the Snyder cut of Life yeah, Force. Yeah, so so that's I mean that's quite a bit of footage, mm-hmm. and they probably uh, focus on the things that we said. Hey, where did yeah. this come from? That would make sense. Um, okay, so the final scene here of our climax: Kane runs into the chapel. He finds that Carlson has succumbed to the female vampire, and they're uh, <clears throat> ahem, consummating their relationship, so to speak. <laughs> um, you know, at this point, we've seen the the reveal of the bat, so. You know, Carlson's essentially doing it with a big bat, <laughs> which is I can't now not think that even though he's, you know, with this beautiful woman. Yeah. Um, so it's it, I, I don't know. I, I found this scene kind of comical only because, you know, she's saying, you know, we're almost there. We're almost there. Um, you know, Kane's yelling down because they're kind of in this pit. Uh, Kane's yelling down at Carlson. He's got the sword. Carlson like puts his his hand up just so as he's you know getting it on with, with the vampire, and then um, Kane throws the sword down, and Carlson makes the ultimate sacrifice by shoving the sword through both the vampire and himself. So I, I didn't see that coming. Um, kind of a surprise there. This all this blue energy that's that's heading up to the ship turns to red, which is bad. Uh, and then she and Carlson, again, in kind of a comical, they go shooting up towards the object. Well, it's, it's too revealed by her that, that he is one of them. That he's one of? One of the space vampires. Oh, Carlson has turned yeah, into? Yeah. Well, that, that, that's why he has this connection with her. Yeah. I, I, you know, you she know, says, you're one of us. I started to, I, and I thought she was trying to like turn him to that, but then, you know, because he still had human in him he stopped it and, and killed mm. made the sac- sacrifice his own life so he wouldn't then turn into one of them clearly but or i guess the the, the meaningless sacrifice because apparently you know as they sh- shoot up to space like the, isn't there a scene where the sword drops out and the sword does drop out yeah. uh yeah so it's the sword drops down uh, at like kane's feet who's left in the street staring up at the sky um the ship turns and just starts heading back to the comet but you did see like all this life force being distributed to the pods in the yes, ship yeah there you see the like crackling of blue energy everywhere. right so you know the humans win minus most of london um, yeah. <laughs> but then cue credits with kane you know standing in the street staring up 
So the ending certainly set the stage for a sequel. Uh, had this been successful, uh, Rob, what did you think of the way the the climax and the film wrapped up? Yeah, I sort of thought it was a little odd to to you know with with no explanation. You know, you get him you know making the ultimate sacrifice to to skewer the two of them in an attempt to stop this, and then it's like, yeah, it doesn't matter, and we're not going to tell you why it doesn't matter, but. There's, you know, it doesn't stop him, and now he's he's going off with the space vampires because apparently he is one somehow. I think it's ironic too that a, a film that kind of teased, um, you know, Carlson and this and this beautiful vampire having sex basically throughout the entire uh, movie has such an anticlimactic ending. Yeah, <laughs> to, yeah. To 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 bring it all into a um, apropos verbiage i guess um, yeah certainly not a, not a happy ending which is, <laughs> is you know generally not well received by audiences too right and and like you said what yeah what's happened like did did the humans win what's happening on the ship um it just starts floating away back to the comet presumably to move on to another world so should we look out for it and maybe they're maybe they're just waiting to make the sequel a year before Haley's comet comes back <laughs> in 2061 <laughs> so we, we you and me both have to make it to 2060 oh, to see the sequel luck. i suppose yeah. yeah okay so that's it a very unique uh so to speak kind of va- uh, an interesting take on vampires slash zombies um so that's it uh we know uh, that the film was a box office flop in 1985, but does have a bit of a cult following now. Rob, let's check in with Rotten Tomatoes to see what others think about the film. Uh, what do you think the audience score between one zero and a hundred is for Life Force? I think you know because it, it it just seems like it has. It's one of those ones that, in hindsight, everyone has a positive opinion of it. So I'm going to go 74%. Life Force has an audience score of 45%. Oh, wow. Wow. And a tom- <laughs> I'm bad at this game. <laughs> and, but a tomato meter score, which is um, critics, of 58%. Okay. Which is impressive, just first of all, because it even has a tomato score, because most of yeah. our Up All Night films don't even have a tomato meter score and then um but i will say this i think most impressive there's there are more than five thousand re- user reviews on the film Whoa. so yeah, even though absolutely. the score is only 45 percent uh people are watching and weighing in so here are a few recent reviews uh christopher h gave it three and a half stars and writes incredibly over-the-top twist on the vampire genre about space vampires that can absorb your soul the film starts off strong but by the third act it gets a little ridiculous and silly and the plot gets completely thrown out the window but still manages to be entertaining with some cool practical effects so christopher h you just basically summed up everything we said in the last hour (laughs) in one uh short paragraph so that that's a pretty good description of the film i would agree with Uh, encapsulates it pretty well Russell L goes with three stars and writes better than I thought it would funny in places it's not supposed to be funny campy and corny but with a real element of tension and sweeping in its scope I suspect that this movie influenced a number of other films or maybe it was the other way around meh it passed the time and I'll turn off bad movies in a heartbeat so again Russell L (laughs) summing up everything we said you know talking about how okay 28 days later didn't get all the credit uh so yeah another really these we need to find christopher h and russell l and bring them (laughs) on the show because they they they're right in sync with us well i I did find it uh the the sort of stark contrast between uh steve's rail back rails backs character you know uh and all the british actors like he definitely is like relative to how straight they're playing it. He's like wildly unhinged. Yes. And, and for me, that did add a lot of comedy to scenes. It did. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, even the one really weird scene that we discussed, uh, it's still, you know, as, as creepy as it was, just his acting and, and his, his just insanity uh, was enjoyable. Yeah. Almost a Nicholson feel there. Yeah. One flew over yes. the cuckoo's nest in that, in that, <laughs> awkward scene with the gal um and he had this texas twang 
that mm-hmm. that took it even more over the top in in comparison to the the uh, accents the british accents of his counterparts yeah absolutely yeah. so william s gives it 5 stars rob and says wow. a remake is required or maybe a prequel or seasons please Okay, I love this idea, William S. I'm right there with you. What do you think, Rob? I think this would make a really cool series today on Netflix, don't you? Yeah, I, I you know, they did a really good job of, of, you know, sprinkling in just enough of this, you know, much larger story uh, that you could take in so many different directions. Uh, but just, yeah, the, the general premise of these sort of life force sucking space vampires is is fun and you can do all kinds of, uh, you know, whether it be a season or a series of movies. Yeah. It's, it's rife for that kind of thing. Another five-star review from Sarah L who succinctly writes boobs, space vampires, and Patrick Stewart. (laughs) So there you go. Yeah. She's right in sync again. (laughs) And then finally, Sean O isn't as positive in saying got to be one of the worst films I've ever had the misfortune to sit through. I feel like I've wasted a valuable part of my life, but he gave it four stars. So (laughs) I don't know, Sean. O. maybe figure out how Rotten Tomatoes works before being so harsh on movies. So, uh, okay, Rob, we've heard from everybody else. It's time to answer the age-old question we ask at the end of every show. Is Life Force worth staying up all night for? I mean, it certainly checks some of the right boxes uh, when you're staying up all night for one of these movies. Because, yeah, as we've we've widely indicated, you know, you've got female nudity ab- abundant throughout, you know, with your, your lead space vampire. Uh, but I... I, I Again, I'm having a tough time with this one because I was, I did feel it dragged quite a bit, and and uh, gosh, I'm gonna say no. It's it's probably not. Wow. Okay. Well, this is one of the rare episodes where we disagree. Uh, I really dug this movie, and I say yes, it is worth staying up all night for. I see how it missed the mark and flopped at the box office. The pacing is a bit slow, especially for the majority of at least the first um, part of the rising action, especially for an 85 sci-fi film and the soundtrack was outdated. I think where it really suffered was just a lack of star power in 1985. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had the Brat Pack, Michael J. Fox, Harrison Ford, Whoopi Goldberg, Mel Gibson, Sylvester Stallone, Kelly McGillis. I mean, just all these major players that we would go to the theater to see. Um, I mentioned it earlier, this was the formation of the blockbuster formula in this time, and a big element of that is having a well-known star in your vehicle. So I think if you recast this with a bigger lead and a more well-known supporting cast, I bet you would have gotten butts in the seats in theaters. Oh, yeah, I think so too. And and I think more from the the up-all-night standpoint, I think the the slow pacing of the beginning, you know, if you're you're not going to hook that audience in, I just think people would would tune. I I would have tuned out despite the uh, the I, nudity. I was gonna say I think Matilda May and the fun kind of creepy um, life force sucking action from those <clears throat> from those early scenes was enough to keep me would have still been enough to keep me into it had I been you know tuned in for the up all night uh, yeah. debut of this. But, uh, you know, it, it looked good for its time. It didn't look like your typical B movie. So Canon, well done on your first. And I think one of your only attempts at a blockbuster, you know, yeah. you have to think Rob, what would Canon look like today? Had this been a hit? No kidding. Yeah. It, it, Cause I think it's sort of, um, you know, they certainly not long after this, you know, started to really have money issues. So, yeah, I think you have to think this was kind of the start of that. Like, how do you come out of a <laughs> that sort of hole? Yeah, the, I mean, they left their mark in Hollywood for sure, but they left their mark uh, by being anti-Hollywood, essentially. And I think, yeah. you know, I, I think that's why they shot in England is to avoid the constraints that, you know, filming in L.A. would have would have done to them. And uh, and boy, they they knew how to stretch a dollar and make the most um, yeah. out of it. So you know, had this been a hit, and they continued to to make blockbusters, you have to you have to ask not only what what would this have meant for Canon, but what would this have meant for Hollywood if they kind of yeah. said, "Hey, look, we can make blockbusters outside of the Hollywood kind of 
restraints. Well, and that's sort of, you know, really their legacy is, is that they, you know, attempted this and, and, you know, a new mold and, and, you know, were like uh, directors that work with them still to this day, look back fondly at the, the chances that the studio was willing to take and, and their sort of just general mindset. Um, yeah, you just wish it, it would have been a little more successful to help, you know, a paradigm shift and, you know, gosh, the movies that could potentially, you know, it's like, Heck, the Snyder Cut, you know, and we talked about it the other day. You've got someone given $70 million to to help slap something together that really didn't exist in a, in a completed form. You know, and you've got how many indie filmmakers that – what would they do with $70 million? I mean, God. Give them 1% of that and they could do yeah, a movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, our own energy is dwindling here, so it's time to wrap up the episode. Rob, any last thoughts on Life Force? I mean, I, I still think I look back at this this movie favorably, and, and there, it does have a lot going for it, and, and I do enjoy the, the central premise. Uh, so, I, you know, despite the not staying up for it, I still enjoy the movie, and, and it, it, yeah, holds a place uh, for the 80s for me. Uh, we want to say thanks again to Austin Trunick for preserving what Canon contributed to the film world during this time. You can give him a follow on Twitter. He's at Canon Film Guide. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter at Still a Podcast. We'll be back next month with a new episode covering an old movie on Still Up All Night. director of Poltergeist, from the special effects creator of Star Trek The Motion Picture, Life Force. In the blink of an eye, the terror begins.